You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 6, 47 to 71. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning to those were who did not believe and who it was would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning once again. Welcome to Sacred City Church. It's a joy and privilege to be with you this morning as we worship the Lord. Um, I know this is the second week that we've had a lot of youngsters in the sanctuary here as we as we preach, go through the sermon. And 
And I know many of you might feel concerned about being distracted, and I can assure you that I will not be distracted by your children. It's my children that I will be most distracted by. Uh, and so we will fight through this together. Anyway, um, we are pressing on in our sermon series through the book of John. We've gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And here we are in John chapter 6. So let us go before the Lord together and ask that he would speak to us together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your kindness and your provisions to us. Lord, you give us your word that we might know you and know ourselves rightly. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts this morning, that the light of Christ would shine into our hearts, the darkness would be pushed back, that our hearts would be stoked uh, toward faith in you and trust in your word, that our lives would be ordered rightly as Christ is Lord and we are his servants. I pray that you would use me this morning, Lord, as I feel not right. I feel like I, I, I'm empty, and so your spirit, I'm asking, would fill me up and allow me uh, to be a conduit of your message to your people this morning, that you would work toward refining and sanctifying this church to be the bride which you have called to yourself. I pray that the words that we hear this morning, we would receive them as a gift, that you, you would work in our hearts in a way that we are eager to receive what word you have for us. And Lord, enable me to speak rightly, to speak clearly. Help me to speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth so that your church would grow up in every way and walk according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, I, I've... I, we just got back from a trip to my hometown uh, this past weekend, quick little getaway, and as I was back at home, I was reminded of a lot of my childhood as a young boy and having four young boys. I, I think I've, I've come to realize that there is a pure delight in blowing things up, <laughs> right? There's something fun about fireworks or building, building Legos and destroying them or sandcastle and seeing that thing crumple down. There's something fun about blowing things up. And there are some things that God also likes to blow up as well. In John chapter 6, we see God blowing up misperceptions of Jesus Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians 10, as I flip here, if I can get there. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This tells us that God delights in destroying strongholds and in, in dismantling uh, the, the opinions of man, of destroying the misconceptions that we have about God, ourselves, and the world that we live in. Now, one of the things that God is destroying in this passage is a, a modern misconception, misperception of who Jesus is exactly. People often think that Jesus is this soft, agreeable pushover. That Jesus exists to please. That he's desperate to gain followers and he'll do anything to keep a crowd. And so basically people have this mindset that as long as I show up, Jesus is happy with how I am. Now there's something about this version of Jesus that we've created that Westerners and Americans alike, that, that we've come to enjoy 
If, if we have a Jesus that is so eager to retain our followership, right? Like if, if you're on, on Instagram, you know, he's just so easy to maintain that number. It doesn't want to say anything, do anything that might drive you away. That means we have a Jesus that we can push around. That means we have a Jesus that we can manipulate or we can custom tailor to fit our own preferences and desires. Now, the, the irony of this or the absurdity of this is that a man-made God is of no real help to us. A Jesus that's made after our own image or after our own desires cannot save us, can't lead us, can't pull us out of the mess we've made of our own lives. And churches that get together and celebrate sin or redefine what sin is are of no use to society. So if God is made in our own image, we've created our own Jesus, that's no of help to us. And a church that is worshiping our own Jesus is no, of no help to the society. Now thank the Lord that the real Jesus comes on his own terms. The real Jesus comes to us, for you bourbon enthusiasts like myself, full proof. There's no water, there's no cut, it's all the real deal. And like a good uncut bourbon, Jesus comes both full of flavor and with some kick. And this is what we see today. We see the full-flavored Jesus. We see the Jesus that packs a bit of a punch. And some people take to him. Some people like him and, and desire to continue following. But then we'll see others who say, well, this Jesus, he's got too much bite. I don't want that Jesus. I don't want the Jesus that's going to push and poke at me. And today we're going to see why you have two separate reactions to Jesus in this way. You've got some who are willing to follow and some who are ready to walk away. Now, why is that? What drives them to this decision? In short, it is the hard words of Jesus. Now, let's start in our passage by looking at the reaction of the people. At this point, we've been going through uh, John chapter six, and you see Jesus uh, in John chapter five, um, he, well, wait, some point along the line, he multitudes fish and loaves. He, he, he um, feeds a mass multitude, then he walks on water and escapes to Capernaum to get away for some silence and solitude. And then he goes on teaching, as we're told, in the synagogue or all, all around Capernaum. And let's take a look at the reaction that Jesus gets from some of the people who are there listening. They're called his disciples. And one thing that's really helpful to know, just on the outset here, is that the word disciples is used, uh, the same word used for two separate groups of people. It's going to be really helpful as we get to the end here to be able to distinguish these two separate groups. So listen to this, verse 60 of John chapter 6. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, there are two ways that we can interpret this phrase that says hard sayings. First is to say that it's a difficult to understand saying. Now, in real time, that could have been the case. It's, it's a difficult saying to understand and comprehend. If you're right there on the hillside or right there in the city of Capernaum with Jesus at the synagogue, listening to teach, you, you don't understand the whole story yet. And so there might be a difficulty in understanding and comprehending what it is Jesus is saying. But by the response that we get from the people, it's actually more likely the second 
way that we could interpret the, the word or the phrase hard sayings. It's that it is a harsh saying, that it's offensive. People take offense at the things that Jesus says. See, if you see it, look in, in verse 60. But Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And so it's clear, as Jesus spoke, many people heard and were offended by what Jesus said. They took it to be too harsh, too provocative, not PC. Now, if that's a response, we got to ask, well, what, what, what exactly did Jesus say that warrants such grumbling or retort? There's several uh, glimpses here, or so, several different situations where you see in, in John chapter 6 where the people start grumbling or arguing or going back and forth. What, what is it exactly that provokes the crowd to, to grumble against what the Lord, what Jesus is saying? And I think there are three things, three big things. We can put them under these three categories. Number one has to do with the use of the phrase, I am. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, it's, it's a phrase called ego uh, yemi. And it's, it's a, a reference back to the way that God presented himself at the burning bush with Moses when he said, I am what I am. That phrase is being used, and as Jesus uses it, it's cleverly being used to claim that Jesus is, in fact, God, that he is the Son of God. And he elaborates on this as he talks on the discourse last week we saw as he's presenting himself as the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. If you go back up into verse 41, this is what they're, they're grumbling about. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this Jesus, not the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. So no one comes to the Father unless, uh, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus is presenting this reality I am the bread of life. I'm, I've, I'm the bread that has come from heaven. I am, I am God, is what he's saying. And he's saying, on top of that, this extra little jab is that only those who are drawn by the Father can come to him. It's only those that the Father brings and, and, and pulls like, like you would draw water from a well. It's only those who go from a stagnant place to moving by the power of God that can take and eat the bread of life and be spiritually filled. This is what verse 44 tells us. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. So that itself, it's, a, it's, it's all encased in this. Jesus said, I am God, I am the bread of life. No one can eat of this unless the Father draws me. They see that. Who are you to say that? So that's offensive thing number one. Now, number two, where they start to be like, what in the world are you saying, is when Jesus takes this metaphor and kind of pushes it a bit further in verses 51 through 56. And maybe while you were listening to it, you're like, oh, that sounds strange. Listen, verse 51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, his flesh. So the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, 
you're like, what is he talking about? Right? Some like cannibal stuff, like vampiric stuff, drinking blood, eating flesh. And that whole thing sounds weird to us. Well, and, and it probably would sound even more uh, strange to the original audience because we can read that, we can listen to this and, and know that it's sort of an allusion to the Lord's Supper. What we're gonna partake here as the bread represents the body that was broken, the wine, the cup that was spilled, Christ's blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of sin. So we have a framework to understand, okay, how does this fit? At least we can, can start to do this theological reasoning around this concept. But the first century Jews, as they're talking and they're listening to Jesus, this is like, what are you talking talking about, especially since one of the prohibitions that the Lord makes in Leviticus 7 is that it is forbidden to drink blood. So what is Jesus talking about here if he's saying that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? People are scratching your head, their head. This is crazy talk. You are, uh, that is offensive that you would say such a thing. So there's one, there's two, now here's the third one. And this is really, this is the cherry on top. This is really the main reason why the Jews are, are irritated, are taking offense at Jesus. And that is simply put because Jesus is publicly claiming to be better than Moses. Now, the American equivalent of this would be for an American to stand up and say, I'm better than Thomas Jefferson. I'm better than George Washington. I'm better, I'm better than Chuck Norris, the American legend, or Oprah Winfrey, the national treasure. Somebody stay, stand up there and say that. That would be offensive to them. The Jews would be offensive for Jesus to say, offended to hear Jesus saying, I am better than Moses. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying as you look at verses 58 and 59. He draws this contrast between um, this episode in the wilderness where Moses was leading his people. God brought manna down from heaven. We, we saw that referenced in last week's passage and what Jesus offers, the true bread, the true life. He says this, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, not like the bread that Moses gave to the people and died. Jesus says, whoever feeds on this bread, his bread, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So publicly, Jesus is claiming he is better than Moses. Now, this, this may not seem that scandalous to us. We're, we're sort of removed from that context, that culture, but this would have been shocking. In fact, you can, you can argue that this is the reason that Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7, that's what got him killed because he was saying that Jesus is better than Moses. Now, in all of this, all of these three main offenses, these big umbrella points that Jesus points out, people are offended. And, and what they think in that moment is that, that Jesus is being too harsh. Now, we need to realize something important here as we navigate through this passage. We need to, to, to acknowledge something that is essentially the difference between following Jesus and rejecting Jesus. And this thing that we need to acknowledge not only helps us follow Jesus, but it also helps us in our relational lives together as the body of Christ. And that difference that we need to acknowledge in this passage is the difference between taking offense and giving offense. There's a difference between taking offense and giving offense. Oftentimes, if someone is offended, our instant reaction is that some, the other person did something wrong. If somebody is offended, they're in the right and the offender is in the wrong. That, that's part of this, this victim mentality that's caked into our culture uh, that, that says, I'm hurt, so that other person's the bad guy. It's just this instantaneous gut reflex. 
And if we care about biblical justice, if we care about the standards of right and wrong, what's good and true, then we have to acknowledge that that isn't always the case. It might be the case. It might be true that the hurt person was in fact offended or sinned against, but there are times where people can be hurt and offended where there was no offense given. And in these situations, to to use a biblical framework of justice, we need to be able to examine both the offended and the offender. We need to have an objective approach to reality of what actually happened. Now, in this situation, what actually happened here? Let's, Let's pull back the layers. The reality of this exchange is this, that Jesus is perfect, that no offense was given. Jesus only says and does the things that the Father does, that the Father says. Jesus, there's no sin in him. There's no contempt in his heart. Jesus does what is right. In all ways, he is above reproach. Yet, the people are offended. Why is that? Well, what we'll see is that their sensibilities are distorted. Their perception is skewed. They don't have a right understanding of reality. Now, this is what Jesus points out here as he says. He sees them in their offense, and Jesus says, um, when they say in verse 60, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself that disciples were grumbling about this, he said, do you take offense of this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, what he's saying here is that if you were to see me as I truly am, you would not take offense at this at all. If you would see me occupying the station in heaven with the Father, and and you see me rightly for who I am, the Son of God, the God himself incarnate in the flesh, you would not take offense at this. He's saying that their perception is askew, therefore they are taking offense at Jesus' words. If, if we really knew who Jesus was, his words would not be hard for us to digest. Yet, in our culture, much of what Jesus says is seen as obtuse, outdated, and offensive. Now, I'm about to go through a list of things that might get me canceled, and I'm okay with that. But, but Jesus speaks on things like gender, Male and female made in the image of God. There is no other option. There's no flippy floppy. Marriage is between one man and one woman before the Lord in covenant together for life. We see Jesus promote the beauty and sanctity of life, which then condemns abortion. We see the scriptures teach that only men can be pastors. I mean, you can go through a whole list of hard things that Jesus says, not just in his ministry, but through the whole canon of scripture, because all of this is Jesus' words. And so it's no wonder, with all these things that Jesus says, that, that natural people like us, our, our flesh, we hear those and we feel like it is offensive, It's because our natural disposition as humans is to be hard toward God. We we heard it in the the passage from Ezekiel, the hard-heartedness. It's like a ping pong ball. The word of God bounces off on us because our hearts are hard. It's offensive to us. Now, 
John Calvin, in his commentary, says something incredible that I'm just going to read um, straight up. In, in regard to their offense in verse 60, he says this. It was in their hearts and not the saying that the harshness lay. But out of the word of God, the reprobate are thus accustomed to form stones to dash themselves upon. And when, by their hardened obstinacy, they rush against Christ, they complain that his saying is harsh, which ought rather to have softened them. For whoever shall submit with true humility to the doctrine of Christ will find nothing in it hard or disagreeable. But to the unbelievers who oppose themselves with obstinacy, it will be a hammer which breaks the rocks into pieces, as the prophet Jeremiah calls it. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like hammer that breaks rock in pieces. The problem here is not that Jesus' words are hard, it's that the hearts of people are hard. Now, if we have this natural disposition of hard-heartedness, and Jesus tells us that our flesh is of no use, that, that we cannot, in our own ability, tinker with our heart in a way to make it more receptive to the word of God, how will we ever come to the point where we see true reality as it is, that, that these are, in fact, good words? What Jesus says, they are the words of spirit and of life. Well, Jesus tells us. The only way that you can receive Jesus' words is if the Holy Spirit changes your heart. Now, if you flash back to the story of Nicodemus, who came, who was a Pharisee that came in the cover of night asking Jesus about this whole, like, uh, how do I get to the kingdom? And Jesus says, you must be born again. This is the, the, the illusion. This is what Jesus is referencing to, that the Spirit must regenerate the heart so that it sees reality correctly. And while the Bible and God's ways are full of reason, you cannot, in your own flesh, in your own ability, logic your way into understanding. The flesh is of no use. It is the spirit who produces life. Faith is granted to those to the Father appoints to receive life. This is, again, going back to verse 44, where Jesus says, only the ones who are drawn to me can come to me. Only the Father, the Father draws those, and those are the ones who come to me. And Jesus rearticulates this in verse 65, as he says, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The, the flesh is of no use. This means that only the Holy Spirit reveals who Jesus truly is, that he is the bread of life, that he is the Son of God, that he is the true and better Moses. And the Spirit also shows us that every word that Jesus speaks are both spirit and life. This is what Jesus' response is to them when he says, can you not understand? Why do you take offense of this? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no, of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are of spirit and of life. Now, spirit in the sense that these words are spiritual words from heaven. These are not your ordinary words. 
This is a disclosure from God, a revelation from God that is a spiritual word from heaven, not an empty philosophy or human opinion that we've generated here on earth below. So his words are spirit. They're heaven sent. But they're also words of life. As the spirit of God works to produce Life. It regenerates our hearts. Our heart of stone is taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. Therefore, we experience this new birth, this new life. And what Jesus points to in verse 56 is true union with God. Look at verse 56. He says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, as we move forward further into uh, John's gospel, we'll see this abiding language, this union with Christ being expressed to a greater extent. But Jesus is saying, my words produce life because it pulls you in me and me in you. Your response to Jesus will reveal if the Holy Spirit has actually revealed true reality to you or not. This is how we know. This is how we do a diagnostic on our life. How am I receiving Jesus? How am I receiving his words? If I, if I push away, well, the Spirit has work to do. See, we either walk away from Jesus like the crowd does in verse 66... Right, Jesus says these things to them. He offers a response and it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, if this is your response to Jesus' hard words, that you don't want anything to do with them, that, that you want to, instead of the real, true Jesus, you want to default to a Jesus made in your own ideas, your own generation of a Jesus, custom-tailored Jesus, then you don't really want the real Jesus. But there are those who stay. There are those like the disciples who Jesus asks after he sees a multitude. And, and Jesus isn't off put by this. Like Jesus, he says, um, where does it say it? Oh, he says, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who, uh, sorry, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew that there were gonna be people who walked away. It didn't catch him off guard. He wasn't surprised by that. Jesus didn't go to, to re, you know, reconfigure his ministry um, philosophy. We see people walk away from Jesus, but there are also those who stay. And the ones who stay have a similar response as to the apostle Peter and what he said in verse 67 through 69. He said, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave me behind like the rest of the crowd does? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, the Spirit has done a work in this man's life, in the disciples' life, at least 11 of the 12, because we've got Judas who will go on to deny Jesus, to walk away from him, betray him. That, that's a whole ordeal thing. 
But the Spirit is doing a work in the hearts of the apostles so that they can see Jesus rightly. There's no need to tinker with him and try to invent a different kind of Jesus. And and Peter says, where else do we have to turn to? There are no other viable options. Nobody else has the ability to give life and spirit. Nobody else can show us the way to God. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Jordan Peterson, not Joe Rogan, not Rachel Hollis. Nobody but Jesus. These people, you know, I I like Jordan Peterson. He's helpful in a lot of things, but the words that he speaks are empty philosophies because they aren't totally the word of God. It's not inspired. There's no life in it. It's just simply human opinion and empty philosophies that are of no use. And and if you decide to step away from Jesus and go to someone anywhere else, then in that moment, you're making, you're staying where you already are, right? Which is dead in your sins, You either come to Jesus and have life or you stay away from Jesus and remain dead spiritually. Jesus speaks to this in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So you'll either reject Jesus and perish or you believe and in Christ, by his grace, through the spirit, you are given eternal life. This is not an accomplishment that you do in yourself. This is a gift from God, the gift of faith to see, the heart, the heart softened to receive, the eyes opened to see clearly. And we need to realize that there is no middle ground here. It's either Embrace Jesus and all of his words or reject Jesus. It's one or the other. There is no neutrality. You are either a true disciple of Jesus, like the 11, among the 11 who are true disciples of Jesus, the the true sheep of the flock, or you're a goat. You're, You're a bandwagon follower. Just as we saw, a lot of them were there and they all step away. Either Jesus' hard words will soften your heart and be to you sweet like honey, or you'll be repulsed by them. The words of Jesus will appear to either be foolish or wise, harsh or compassionate, hard or tender. And the same thing goes for the message of the cross. The apostle John writes in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says this, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are believing, uh, but But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. See, God again destroying things. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the way of folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now listen. Now consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful or of noble birth, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here is the offense. Uh, the gospel is offensive to the world in every generation. I guess Christians, we, we, have, we have to be used to the fact that, that to, to some, we will smell bad. They, they don't want anything to do with us. And it's not that we need to change our fragrance. It's not that we need to change our approach or change our message. That's just how it is. That's the antithesis. There will, some, there will be some who reject Christ and his word. Now, the thing that seems so offensive to nearly every generation is the fact that we are so sinful. The only way salvation can be achieved is if Jesus dies in your place. You are so broken, so warped, so crooked that the only way that you could be mended, the only way you could be fixed, the only way you could be straightened out is if Jesus, who lived a perfect life, would take on the weight of your sin on the cross. This is the offensive thing. But, but here is the good news of the gospel. While you were way worse than you thought. God is full of grace and mercy. There is not a sin that he cannot atone. There is not a sinner he cannot bind up. The gospel is offensive to the world. But to those who understand our brokenness, to those who see our fragility, it is the good news of redemption that's found only in Christ. Now, Jesus, the, the way of the gospel, the way of salvation is not only offensive to the world, but like I mentioned, the, the words of Christ are offensive to the world. If, if you are, in fact, one of God's beloved children, we now learn to think God's thoughts after him. That we learn to cherish the word of God, 
to see the world rightly, to see true reality the way that God sees it. And so there is this, this change that happens in us. Because our thoughts are not God's thoughts, our thoughts must be conformed to the thoughts of God. And so there's, there's this real thing that we, as, as we sit here at the preaching of the word, as we, we live in community, as we study the Bible together and in our individual uh, studies, we shouldn't be surprised when our thoughts don't align to God's thoughts. But it's the arrogant who goes, oh, God must be wrong. He's wrong about this. That's all right. He's in the dark ages. It's the arrogant who says, we need to change this. It's the arrogant who says, oh, yeah, my pastor's good-hearted. I think he's well-intentioned, but he's wrong. Or my MC leader, they don't know what they're talking about. That, that's the, the arrogance of the flesh swelling up in those moments rather than coming in humility and seeking understanding. Like, God, what, what are you saying? Help me to think your thoughts. And when we have the humility to see the world as God does, to see ourselves as God sees us, only then will our boast resonate into eternity. Only then will our boast be in Jesus Christ and eternal life be ours. Because Jesus did it better than Moses. He's the one that can actually sustain us through life as the world bombards us with different uh, lofty philosophies and opinions of man. The word of God sustains us and upholds us through the spirit to hang on to every single word that Jesus has uttered, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. To see him as he truly is, the son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. The one whose body was broken for our sins, whose blood was shed on our behalf. The one who is offering us himself, saying take and eat. Both physically here in the Lord's Supper, but in a spiritual sense. Eat and be satisfied. Get your fill. Learn to love my words and me and it will be sweet to you like honey. And this morning, there's an invitation that those who are truly the disciples of Jesus, those who have faith that is given to them by God, not just for salvation, but for all of life, the invitation stands to come and remember what Christ has done. The night he was betrayed by Judas, the Lord took bread and he broke it. He gave his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same night he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My, my blood shed, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And so today we come to the Lord's table to, remind, to be reminded that Jesus has paved the way of salvation, that Jesus has offered us the ability. He's granted us access to see true reality that God is Savior and Redeemer, and we are his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your kindness. We pray, we pray, Lord, that you would, in fact, soften our hearts to receive even these hard words. We might even this morning feel offended about something that, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in us and, and show us and open our eyes to see the things that we ought to really be offended by. The corruption of the world, the degradation of the word of God, the way that the church is defiled, 
Lord, we ask that you would give us your heart, your mind, to think your thoughts after you. In this meal, Lord, would you bless it to our bodies, that we'd be strengthened to live as true disciples of Jesus. Not, not those who run away when things get hard. Not those who, who run away in ignorance when we can't compute the words of our Savior, but those who stay and say, Lord, where would we go? Where else do we have to turn to? You have the words of eternal life. And so we thank you for this gift of eternal life through your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.